This morning, uh, we're finishing the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been going through this book since uh, about August, and it is one of the 66 books in the Bible, perhaps not the first one you turn to for inspiration, perhaps not one that immediately comes to mind when you think of what is in the Bible. But as we have gone through this book, the author of Ecclesiastes has been investigating and meditating on how to live wisely in a messed up world that doesn't always go the way that we expect it to. And so he has kind of spent his time just exploring all these different ways to live, looking at the way the world works and wondering how do we live well. And he wraps up the book at the end of chapter 12 with a kind of epilogue. And in this epilogue, he sums up everything that he has learned. He tries to give us, all right, I've done all of this, I've shown all of my work, and here is the answer I have come to. And so that's where we are today. We're finding out what it is the author of Ecclesiastes has learned. And so if you will, open your Bibles or turn in the bulletin. We're in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 through 14, as we bring this book to an end. Ecclesiastes 12, beginning in verse 9. Here's the word of the Lord. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Scriptures that we can spend each week going through them and we can go through them for years and years and yet they are still filled with riches and wisdom that we can learn each time. And so we pray, O God, as we hear Your Word today, that You would speak through Your Word, that You would use me in spite of my weakness, in spite of my sin. Help me, O God, to faithfully proclaim Your Word, expounding it and applying it to us. God, we ask that You would give us ears to hear, that we know that Your words are different from other words, that they are Your inspired words, and so we need to hear them. Lord, we pray that You would open our hearts and minds to receive them in such a way that we receive Your Word today. And that You, by the power of Your Spirit, might work in us through Your powerful and life-giving and transforming Word. We ask this in accordance with Your promises in Your Word and in the strong name of Jesus, our one Shepherd. Amen. Well, we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, and the big idea I want us to hear this morning about wisdom is this, that wisdom comes more from the fear of God than from the increase of knowledge. 
That's really what we see today. That wisdom comes more from the fear of God than it does the increase of knowledge. And that's what we're going to find in our passage today. The author of the book, who likes to call himself the preacher, he summarizes what he has done in our passage. He says he has wisely taught people knowledge. That he has weighed, he has studied, he has arranged all of these proverbs with great care. That he did so in pleasant and artful ways, making these words a delight to all who read them. So he didn't just want to teach the truth, he wanted to teach the truth beautifully. And he believes he's done a good job. And it's in the Bible, so I think we can say he did a good job. You know, God inspired these words, he has done a beautiful job teaching the truth, and he says this truth is incredibly useful. That's what we see in verse 11. He says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. So he compares his words to goads and nails. Now, children, a goad is not a goat toad hybrid. Okay, that's what it sounds like. It is not half toad, half goat. A goad was a long stick that farmers would use to poke their animals to keep them going, keep them in the right direction. Well, that's what wise sayings are like. They spur us on in the right direction, prodding us out of sin and stubbornness that we would walk the good path. These words are also like nails, not just goads, but nails that are firmly fixed, that nails keep things in place. They give stability. You can think of the shingles on your roof. They are attached by nails to keep them from blowing away in the wind. Or you can think about tent stakes, which are just real big nails. They keep your tent attached to the ground so it does not move. Wise sayings give us that kind of stable foundation. They keep us rooted in the truth so we do not get blown off course in the storms of life. So the author of Ecclesiastes has done the hard work of creating and compiling these wise sayings for others. He knows it can be exhausting to try to adequately describe how to live life well. And he tells us that in verse 12. He says, My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Amen. You know, go in my office, you see a big wall of books. Weariness is, I guess, what that says. It doesn't mean that we should never study. It doesn't mean we should never read books. No, it means that we're never going to be able to read all the books that exist. You can go downtown Washington to Citizens Library and check out a book and read it and go back, check out another one and try to read all the books in the library. You're not going to do it. Not even in that small town library. You will not read all of the books in there. We are never going to be able to learn everything there is to know. There are limits to what we can know. And we understand this as people who live in a digital age. That we have unprecedented access to information through the internet. That we can access the wisdom of experts on almost any subject instantaneously. You just type into Google anything and boom, 
thousands of results that will give you way more information than you can even process. And so it seems like wisdom is just a few clicks away. If only we can optimize our time and learn all of this readily available information. And let me tell you, that is really helpful. I don't know how many times I've been trying to do something around the house and it's just Google. Oh, that's how. Like, it's really, really helpful. It's also really, really overwhelming because we are regularly confronted by how much we don't know. We find conflicting pieces of information and we're anxious about what information we should trust. What is truly wise and how can we know what is true? What do I need to know to protect myself from the dangers of the world? So all of this available information can be helpful, but it often isn't because it makes us more anxious and more fearful than we were before. So instead of growing wiser with knowledge, we can end up growing wearier. We think that just a little more information will settle us. If I just read one more article, if I just learn a little bit more about this, I'll feel better. And it usually doesn't because there's more to learn. The world is full of all kinds of dangers and uncertainty. And with worldwide instantaneous news, we hear about them all the time. And no amount of knowledge can make the world feel safe for us. No amount of knowledge will help the world make sense. And so, yes, wisdom can be expressed in these learnable, beautiful principles, but we can never learn them all. We need something more than knowledge to set us on the path of wisdom. And so the author gives us that in verse 13. He sums up the message of the book there. Now, he could have started with this summary in verse 13. That's how we tend to like to do things, that we like, here's my main point, and I explain it. He does the opposite, because he knows if he had started with his summary, that's all we would have read. It would have been another piece of knowledge that we would have interpreted. But when we see it at the end of his book, when we see it after he has shown us his work and his journey, looking at life from all these different perspectives, we can appreciate the work it took him to arrive at this summary. That he got there honestly. He got there searching. He's like, here is what I found. He says this, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. So he's summing it up. That's what the end of the matter means. It's, this is my conclusion, my summary. It is his goal, his end point in his pursuit of wisdom. Here is my realization. Fear God and keep his commandments. And we're like, oh, that sounds really biblical. And not just because it's here, but Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom does not start with learning information. Wisdom starts with an attitude adjustment. See, often we think of wisdom as the end goal that we are working towards. That if we accumulate enough knowledge, we get wiser and wiser and boom, we have hit 
Wisdom. The Bible shows us that wisdom is a starting point. That we begin with an attitude that fears God and we will proceed to wisely obey His wise commands. As one commentator writes, the attitude of fearing God should result in the action of keeping His commandments. That's how they're connected. So the attitude of fearing God results in the action of keeping His commandments. And we are told in Ecclesiastes, this is the whole duty of man, meaning it's the adequate summary of all God wants. So you could write books and books and books. You could write 31 chapters of Proverbs or 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. You could write all these things out and you could summarize it all. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's the gist. That's all it is. It all boils down to that. Fear God, keep his commandments. It's a lot like our New Testament reading. When Jesus was asked by this scribe, hey, uh, what's the most important commandment? And shocker, uh, Jesus gave the right answer. You know, it's like, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you can sum it up. That's clear enough for children to understand, but difficult enough for the most mature believers to struggle to fully obey. And so our summary here is fear God, keep his commandments. And this is usually the point where we're like, okay, but what does it mean to fear God? I can understand love God. I can understand love my neighbor. I can even understand keep his commandments. What does fearing God mean? Well, our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 10 is pretty helpful to help us understand fearing God. It says this, what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord. Do you hear how fear, love, obedience, service, they're all in there together. They're not mutually exclusive or anything. You don't choose between, well, I'm going to fear God today instead of love God. No, they're they're in some ways the same sort of attitude. They're meant to be done together. And then later in our Old Testament reading, it says this, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And by His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. So we fear the God we trust. We fear the God we praise. And we do so because He has done great things to save us. So fearing God is not just for people who will suffer His wrath someday. The people God saves still fear Him. And we're still like, I, I thought fear was fear. And God tells all sorts of people, do not be afraid. And yet here we're supposed to fear God. What? This still doesn't make sense. Okay, well, perhaps the best way, having gone through Ecclesiastes, is to think about fear of God 
as the antidote to foolishness and the life under the sun. All through Ecclesiastes, we read the author describe life under the sun. And that was the natural or secular perspective. Life without God. To live as if there is no God. And the author repeatedly showed us it's meaningless. It doesn't make sense. It is fleeting. It is unpredictable. It is foolish to try to derive meaning from a world without God. And he says, all of these dead ends of foolishness under the sun are meant to see us that the way to live a life with meaning, the way to wisely live, is not under the sun, but under God. And so we fear God. We live in acknowledgement that He is real, He is there, and He is overall. It shows us that what we fear is something that we are subject to. We are subject to something that deeply shapes us. That is something that we fear. And if you live under the sun, you fear chance and nature. You view yourselves as ultimately subject to these uncontrollable forces And so that means that you live in such a way that you try to enjoy life as best you can, but you know that disasters and disease and death are out there and someday they're going to get you. And that's how you live in fear of those things. We can live in fear of other things. We might be in fear of man, of other people. And if we are subject to the opinion of other people, if that is our controlling fear... We will be shaped by our need to gain their approval and avoid their scorn. These fears are things we are subject to that then shape how we live. And what he's telling us is we need to fear God above all else. We need to see ourselves as subject to God and His divine providence and tender mercy. And we will be shaped by that To live in reverent awe, steadfast trust, and love for this gracious God. So that's what he's saying when he's saying, fear God. It's not fear God. It's not fear God like I fear spiders. It's not fear God like when I saw that house centipede on my pillow one night. That's a different kind of fear and dread. It's not fear like a horror movie. It's not fear like being stuck in a thunderstorm without shelter. It's not that kind of fear exactly. There's similarities, but it is a different kind of fear. It is something over us that shapes us deeply in how we live. Something that concerns us in ways both good and bad. You're like, okay, well, what does it look like to fear God? Right? I know what it's like to be afraid of these things, like if something pops up and I'm afraid of it. Okay, so what does it look like to be, to be fearing God in life? How do we know we have the right kind of fear since we tend to think of fear in these other ways and we need to think about it this way? Well, I found this quote from uh, Michael Reeves. On his, he has this little book on fearing God. It's like 50 pages. It's very good. I just read it this week. I'm happy to share it with anyone else. Here's what he writes. He says, it is the devil's work to promote a fear of God that makes people afraid of God, such that they want to flee from God. 
the Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's work, is the exact opposite. To produce in us a wonderful fear that wins and draws us to God. So good, godly fear draws us to God in love. Sinful fear keeps us away from God and in our sins. And that helps us distinguish between good fear that brings us to God and sinful fear that keeps us away. So it's a sinful fear that keeps us afraid of God, thinking God is our enemy. It's the fear you see Adam and Eve have in the garden after they sin. It drove them into hiding. They were afraid of God and His judgment. They didn't want to be near Him. They fled from His presence. It's the kind of fear that hears verse 14 say this, that God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It hears that verse and it shudders. It's terrified. It wants to run as far as possible from this God who will judge every secret thing about my life. Now, there's truth to that fear. It is a scary thing that God will judge us for every secret thing in our life. But we are not meant to only shudder. That's what the demons do. In James chapter 2, we are told that the demons believe God and they shudder. They believe God is real, but they turn away afraid from Him. That is not a godly fear. That is not the fear commanded in Ecclesiastes. Instead, we are told to have a fear that draws us to God. It's like a full-body response to His glory and grace, being overwhelmed by His majesty and mercy, left trembling before this awesome and accessible God. One of the ways that we might be able to think about it is every year at our Good Friday service, we close the service with the song, Were You There? And the chorus goes, sometimes it causes me to tremble. That reflecting on the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us causes us to tremble with a godly fear. That this is what it took for my salvation. And He did it. For me. Trembling before a God who is holy and merciful, who is just and loving, who is sovereign over all, and yet came and took on our flesh to die in our place. This kind of fear, here's verse 14, very differently. Yes, we are ashamed of the sins that only God knows about. But we are amazed that God forgives us knowing all of our sins. The real truth about us. You see, God did not just come to die for your sins that other people know about. The sins that other people can see in you. When Jesus died for you, He died for all of your sins. The sins no one but you knows about. And He did so because He is the one shepherd who is the source of all wisdom. And He knew that the only way to save you was to die on your behalf. He is the one who knows all about you and yet He still loves you unconditionally. He is not ashamed to call you His own. 
even though He is perfectly righteous, very much unlike you. He loves you. So the question we should ask ourselves when it comes to fearing God is how do we hear verse 14? Let me read it again. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. How do you respond to that? Does that knowledge drive you from God in fear of being exposed? Or does it draw you to Him, knowing that even though He knows that, the judgment for those secret sins has been paid for in Christ? Do not let that judgment drive you from God. Instead, tremble before God, going to Him, knowing that He wants to adopt you as His son, His daughter. And let us love this God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength in such a way that we are overcome with this joy of His greatness and grace towards us. And when that is our attitude for life in this world, that fear overflows into obedience, into wisdom as we keep His commands. We are not drawn to dread that we are going to be judged. We are led to gratitude for the great salvation we have been given. And we want to obey His commands. If you are afraid of God today, if you are fearful of His judgment, hear that you do not need to be afraid in that way because of Christ. Humbly come to our holy God, repenting of your sin, knowing He knows all of it already. And He has paid for it. Willingly paid for all of it. Hold fast to that good news and live wisely for Him out of gratitude for His greatness and grace. Let us pray. Oh God, we pray that You would help us to fear You in the right and godly way. We pray this week as we celebrate Thanksgiving that You would help us to fear You in such a way that we are filled with gratitude. To be overwhelmed by Your greatness, Your grace, by all of the ways You have blessed us, and especially the forgiveness we have in Christ and His sacrifice. Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude and thanksgiving that overflows in obedience. Help us to show our love by keeping Your commands. Not to try to avoid judgment ourselves, but knowing that our judgment has already been taken by Christ on the cross. So Lord, give us that wisdom. Help us to live wisely for You in a world that is so upside down. Let us know that You are the one who has made it right. That You have made us right through Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.